Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. About 18 years ago, 1993, I was a young lieutenant at Fort Benning, stationed here, going through my initial training, and uh, quickly thereafter coming to Fort Benning, I met a young lady, and, um, and this young lady uh, is now my wife, and happened to be that this young lady's grandfather was a jeweler. In fact, he came here through Fort Benning too, in World War II, back in the 40s, he was drafted, fought in World War II. While he was here going through Fort Benning, met a girl, the <laughs> same church that I met this girl at, came back after he got out of the army and became a jeweler at Schomburg's Jeweler. Jewelers, many of you from Columbus are familiar with Schomburg's. He was a jeweler at Schomburg's from basically the end of World War II up until his death just a few years ago for 60 years. And so uh, when it became evident that I was falling in love with this girl and that I you know, wanted to propose to her, um, I went to, a little intimidating, this guy's a jeweler, he knows a little something about bling, and I got to go to him to buy the, 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 uh, the engagement ring. But, but here's what I want us to think about today is, is all of us are familiar with looking at precious stones. Men, that you've, if you've picked out an engagement ring, you've picked out a diamond or, or, or whatever, and you've been in that across the counter from that jeweler and and the the jeweler uh, does some things to prepare you to see this beautiful stone he he breaks out this this little swath this little patch of usually black velvet and he, and then he gives you a couple settings of rings that he wants to show you how this particular stone this diamond can fit on this thing but but never is that moment about like the black patch of velvet. I mean, can you imagine any young groom to be saying, well, that is an impeccably clean piece of velvet that you have there, Mr. Jeweler? Or how many, how many of you say, well, that, that's really, that gold band is really, it's, it's actually kind of shiny. And the way the prongs shoot up to support the stone that will be fitting up in it are so straight. And, well, that's really, really nice. I mean, no, no. It is always about the diamond, right? In fact, the black little piece of velvet in the, the ring, all just are sort of there to prop up this picture of, of beauty. And, and today we're going to work through a, a rich and, and, and very kind of steamy chapter in the Bible, but and we're going to make some truths and we're going to come up with some secondary things that are very important for us to think about today, but, but today I, I want us to see this diamond, and this diamond is a picture of God's unfailing love for his people. And so uh, let's not miss that. Let's not miss that today. This beautiful picture of how God loves his people is what we want to seize our hearts today. And so let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into it. Lord, help us this morning. Uh, Lord, you... Your love is communicated to us in so many ways. And one of the primary ways that it is communicated to us is through Scripture. And much of Scripture is a picture of true stories that become incomplete in the sense of that story is not a, is not a full revelation of who you are, but they become sort of arrows that point us to you and your character and your beauty. And that's what Ruth is today. That's what Ruth 3 is today. And so, Lord, would you help us? Would you help the Christians in this room be stirred in their affections for your unfailing love which you show us in Christ Jesus? And would you help people in this room that have not yet seen your love, have not yet trusted in your unfailing love, in your redeeming love, would you help people in this room who have not done that yet, would you help them see that? And would you make them alive by the power of your love? Would you turn them from death to life? And Lord, would you show us this great diamond of your unfailing love today so that we would leave this room being transformed by the sheer beauty of your grace and love. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to summarize where we've been in Ruth 1 and 2 before we read Ruth 3, in case you've missed the last couple weeks or, or you're here for the first time today, Ruth is this beautiful, 
uh, short story in the Old Testament that, that is about the eighth, I think, book of the Bible, and it's set in this time of Judges. And so you have, most of us, I think, are familiar with Genesis, the creation of all things. God creates the world, and, and He creates people, and among all these people that He creates, He chooses one particular man through whom He will, he will bring a people, His Jewish people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, and this people, then God sets his particular love on to be a sort of display of his love, not because he loves, you know, doesn't love other people, but he wants to show his glory and grace and love to the whole world through this one particular people who he is refining and loving and making his own. So Genesis is all about these people who who are wandering and disobeying and God is showing his love to, and they find themselves in captivity at the end of Genesis, beginning of Exodus, God rescues them from that captivity. They wander through the desert for uh, 40 years, and then he, uh, he brings them into this land that he promised them when he made them into a nation uh, years and years before. And so in Joshua, we find this people of God now in the land where he has called them to be and conquering the land. And then after Joshua is this time of judges where Joshua, this leader, has died and now God's people are where they're supposed to be as far as geography, but their hearts are, are still just chasing after uh, sin and idols. And God's people are being led by judges who God would rise up a particular leader, raise up a leader, and that leader would, for a time, lead God's people back into his ways, but then the cycle would just continue. And so Ruth is a story that's set in this particular time of judges. In fact, the preceding book, in the Bible is called Judges, and it's about these judges and about this time in Israel's history where they're in the geographic spot that God wants them to be, but they're still, their hearts are far from God. There's just, in fact, the, the book of Judges ends with this one sort of stinging sentence that sort of summarizes the whole time of Judges that says that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Just a time of debauchery, a time of uh, extreme sin, and uh, uh, just a time of really idolatry away from God. And then God gives us this picture of this one particular family who during this time of famine in their homeland of Bethlehem retreat to this land of Moab, which is this enemy people that, uh, that was really one of the constant antagonists of God's people in the Old Testament. And so this man Elimelech and his two sons and his wife and and uh, they retreat to this place of Moab where they look for food. Instead of repenting and trusting God in their land, they re- leave the promised land to go to this land of Moab. And there things go from bad to worse. The, 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 the two sons marry these two Moabite foreign daughters, and, which would have been a great shame for an Israeli family, a, a Jewish family. The husband dies, the two sons die, and now in chapter 1 you're left with this bitter mother-in-law and these two uh, Moabitess daughters-in-law who, uh, what are they going to do now? And so uh, now this mother-in-law, Naomi, hears of uh, fortunes turning back in their homeland of Bethlehem. And so she begins this trek back and she dissuades, she attempts to dissuade both of her daughters-in-laws from following her. One of them doesn't, stays there in the land of Moab, her native land. But one of them, Ruth, goes with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so they leave and go back to Bethlehem. And that's where chapter 2 picks up. And in chapter 2, they're just very vulnerable to widows back in Naomi's hometown. Naomi is still bitter. And yet we see fortunes beginning to change. And this young uh, widow, daughter-in-law, Ruth, just happens, you know, like we talked about last week, just happens to be gleaning or gathering a barley and wheat in this particular field that is owned by a relative of the family. And so start, it starts this spiral of events where it seems like the fortunes are beginning to change. And this man named Boaz, this relative of the dead husband of Naomi, the bitter mother-in-law, is the owner of this field. And he takes notice of this young daughter-in-law widow. And he is incredibly generous to her in Ruth chapter 2 and gives Ruth and Naomi all of this food and Ruth chapter 2 sort of ends in an anticlimactic way where we find like we're hoping okay Boaz and Ruth everything's just ready to go just do just make the move man and it just we're sort of it's like a to be continued dot 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 episode and we we find Ruth going back to live with her mother-in-law Naomi till the end of the season and now we pick up in Ruth chapter 3 where uh 
quite honestly, if we were to rate this chapter and this sermon, it would be on the edge of PJ 13 um, for some adult situations. And so we've got, I've got my fifth grader here sitting next to my lovely wife, so in case we need to do some earmuffs, uh, get your hands ready, uh, moms and dads. No, it's, it's all scripture and it's true, but it is very interesting. So let's read um, Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, okay, now remember, we're at the end of this chapter where you've had this incredible meeting of Ruth and Boaz, Ruth the daughter-in-law, in the field of Boaz, where Boaz has been incredibly generous to her. She comes back, brings this load of food back to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and, and you can just imagine in between chapters 2 and chapter 3, Naomi, the mother-in-law, her you know, I just get this picture of like this Jewish, you know, matchmaker, like fiddler on the roof, you know, kind of, you know, um, just this uh, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. And so, you know, she's just, the wheels are turning and she's, and Naomi is about to concoct this scheme, which is, well, it is interesting. So let's read. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? And that word rest in the original language doesn't just mean like physical rest, like you need a nap. What she's, what she's communicating there, should I not seek peace, a home for you? you need, what she's saying there is you need a husband. Not because she didn't enjoy Ruth being with her, but she's actually um, really showing a, a sort of love to Ruth in that she realizes it will go better for Ruth if Ruth were to have a husband. So my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So what's going on there? What is winnowing word? I mean, that's not a word that we use every day. I don't know when the last time you winnowed, but I think I've probably never actually winnowed in my life. And so, so here's what's happening when, when, when this word winnowing at the threshing floor is, is happening in the chapter. There, of course, this is an agricultural society, and, and uh, Boaz has these these barley, wheat fields, and so they would pick these, the, the, the grain like we saw in chapter 2, and, and then they would take them to this place called the threshing floor. Now, now, get out of your mind kind of like a factory and a house. I'm thinking like a wooden floor you would trample on or whatever. That's not what a threshing floor is. A threshing floor would have been a place outside the city, probably on a higher elevation, a place maybe where there was a lot of rock, sort of solid ground, and, and it was a, a, a basically a, a, a solid sort of uh, a floor or a solid sort of surface that you could take this grain, these sheaves of grain, and, and sort of separate them and trample on them to separate the, the actual seed from the, the protective sheath. And so what they'd do is they'd trample on it, and then they'd pick, pick it up with a you know, pitchfork or some sort of thing and pick it up and throw it and let the breeze from the higher altitude sort of separate the chafe from the actual wheat. And so what this was, this was just kind of a, the final step of, of you know, kind of getting the harvest. And it was usually outside of town, and it was usually at a higher location because you know, they needed the breeze to kind of help them separate. So that's what winnowing is. And, and that's what Boaz is doing. And so maybe, maybe Naomi realized that, hey, there's a breeze tonight. This is a very likely time that Boaz is probably going to be at this place called the threshing floor outside the city, uh, doing the final step of sort of harvesting his crop. And so she tells her in verse 3, this is where it starts to get a little interesting, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and, let me just stop there. I mean, that's kind of, keep your eye on Boaz. What I'm about to tell you to do, if you were to accidentally do this to the wrong guy, this could really go badly. I mean, just, you know. So, so know where Boaz is, make sure it's Boaz that you're doing this to, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Okay, so what, what is going on here in the first five verses? Now, this, this is going to take a little bit of work for us to, to think about. 
All right, now, first of all, let's go back to this idea of the threshing floor. The threshing floor is more than just a place where uh, this final sort of stage of getting the harvest or the seed or the wheat or the grain or whatever. Um, it was a place where, you know, blue-collar worker guys did their work. Uh, and it was also known that it would be a kind of place where maybe where, you know, kind of guys that are rough around the edges, uh, that do their work maybe late at night, with that sort of comes some of the illicit activities that often follows men who, you know, just kind of work hard and don't have any direction. I mean, just kind of think of it kind of like maybe like the docks, you know, or maybe like, you know, when I was, when I was up in college thinking about being stationed at Fort Benning, all we talked about was, yeah, man, Fort Benning. All you think about, the only picture you have of Columbus is like Victory Drive, you know. <laughs> and, and so I, I remember just driving down here thinking, oh, my gosh, this place is just terrible. And when I got here, I realized there's actually more to Columbus than, than just this one strip with this traffic light lounge, which thankfully has been now bulldozed, and some of you younger soldiers, soldiers won't know what traffic light lounge is, but I can remember my first day at Binning, they handed us a sheet of paper, and basically our first instruction at Binning is, these are the places you cannot go. If you go to these places, you get like an automatic Article 15 just for breathing within 100 feet of this particular problem. And on that list was this place called, anyway, you guys, from those of you that know and are from Columbus, you remember the traffic light lounge there right next to Ranger Joe's. Well, well, sort of this is the picture here of kind of this seedy area where there was this work being done, but it was also not a place that a young virtuous woman would just sort of go to, right? So this is a, this is a scene. This is a vulnerable scene. This is not a very ideal place for a young foreign woman to find herself in the middle of the night. I mean, every assumption for the, for the Jewish reader of this particular story would be that, oh, something sort of shady is up here. What's going on? And then, then there's these words here where it just kind of sounds like awkward language to us, to our English ears, but, but Naomi instructs Ruth to say, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this. I, I don't think we need to, but let me just, let me just summarize this by saying that in the original language, that the Bible was written here in the Old Testament Hebrew. Uh, every commentator really plays this out that I read on this, that those words, uncover his feet and lie down, are really just charged with suggestive language. Not that anything improper happened here, which we'll talk about in just a second, but this was, a, this was for the Jewish reader to have his feet uncovered and to lie down. I mean, was it perpendicular, horizontal? What's going on here? How much of his feet? But that, that, those words sort of are charged with innuendo. It's a, it's, a, it's a very intentional sort of act. And then he will tell you, Naomi says, what to do. And so Ruth uh, says, okay, I'll do this. So let me just ask a question that I don't necessarily know we have an answer to, and the scripture doesn't necessarily answer it for us, but but why does Naomi think that this plan will work? Does she see the risk involved here? Um, certainly we can say this, and we're going to handle this at the end when we settle on some things that I think the Lord would teach us. But certainly can we not agree that although there's a gap between Hebrew culture and our culture here in, in 2011, this is an awkward scene. This is an awkward scene. <laughs> I mean, can we not agree with that? Right, and it's going to get even more sort of awkward here as we continue to read. So let's go. Let's, verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she, meaning Ruth, came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So he's in kind of this breezy part of the edges of town. He's done this probably many times before. Wasn't used to, you know, having his feet uncovered. And I suppose maybe it was the breeze that, you know, I mean, uh, uh, what's going on here? And you wake up, you got a little chill, you're trying to readjust your blanket. 
and there's this present sort of lingering at your feet. Well, you don't see that every day at the threshing floor. And so he says in verse 9, which I think is a very understandable and appropriate question, who are you? I mean, what was, what was that like? Was he still kind of wiping the sleep from his eyes? Was he, you know, uh, was he, did he have his baseball bat? Was he ready to, you know, was he, am I being robbed here? Or what's going on? Was it just, what is he? But I think a valid question, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Right? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But what a, what a statement. Verse 10, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. All right, there's lots that we've got to think about quickly here to just sort of get us to understand what's going on here better before we move on. And the first thing is, is that Ruth just displayed, we just have to take note of Ruth's incredible boldness. So she, she goes through with this really sort of seemingly awkward advice and scheme that Naomi has concocted, but she actually takes it a step further. Remember, Naomi said, just do this, uncover his feet and lie down in verse 4, and then he will tell you what to do. But Naomi goes a little bit beyond that. She uncovers his feet, and can you just imagine her heart just... <laughs> she's just, okay, she's, she's kept her eyes on him the whole time. She's trying not to be noticed so that people don't sort of take advantage of her. He's all these kind of union workers who are over there telling stories around the fire, and she's just trying to not be noticed by them but keep her eyes on Boaz until everybody goes to sleep. Then he goes to sleep. She keeps her eyes trained on him, and can you just imagine the adrenaline just coursing through her veins, and she sneaks up to Boaz. She uncovers his feet. He wakes up, and her heart is just beating out of her chest. I can only imagine. He looks at her and says, Who are you? And then she, I mean, she just displays this incredible boldness. And she, she didn't get instruction. Naomi, Naomi didn't have anything for her at this point. But she, she just utters this beautiful sentence. And she says, I am your servant. Now, what's interesting about the word that she uses there, where she says, I am your servant, it's a little bit different from the word in chapter 2, where when the first introduction between Ruth and Boaz, where she introduces her, herself to him, she says, I am your servant. But in that word, servant, uh, she's, she's, she's in chapter 2, when she first meets Boaz, she's kind of saying, I'm just like your servant slave. I'm just this foreign uh, Moabitess woman here, just, you know, just here. But in, in chapter 3 here, she uses a different word that we translate in English as servant, but it's more like, I am your maidservant. And the word, the connotation there is that she's saying, hey, I'm, 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 uh, you know, I'm available. She's not being forward. There's nothing sinful in that word. But she's just basically saying, I'm, I'm Ruth. Remember me from the, from the field in chapter 2? But I'm, I'm your servant. But I'm sort of this available. I'm, 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 I'm out there. And then she says to him, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, why is that phrase important? Remember back in, 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 in chapter 2 of Ruth, where Ruth and Boaz have this first interaction. And Booth, Boaz says to Ruth, he says, he says to her, you, you, young lady, I know who you are. And he actually prays those very words over Ruth in chapter 2. So he says that you, may the Lord repay you for the kindness that you have shown to your mother-in-law, Naomi, and may he spread his wings over you. So Boaz prays that prayer for Ruth in chapter 2, and now Ruth is essentially saying to Boaz, be the answer to your own prayer for me, Boaz. But it even goes further than that. This language, spread your wings over your servant, it is really charged with 
a language that would only apply between a man and a wife. Okay? And so what Ruth is saying is she's saying she's sort of in a very clever sort of way, in a very clear sort of way, basically proposing to Boaz in the middle of the night down by the docks in this scene that is just full of irony. You've got a Moabitess woman with a Jewish man. That shouldn't happen. You've got a younger woman with an older man. You've got a you've got a a a a a scene that really shouldn't be two people together. And here you've got Ruth displaying this incredible initiative and boldness, basically saying, answer your own prayer for, prayer for me and marry me. Not only is Ruth one strong girl, because last time we saw her, she was hiking 30 to 40 to 50 pounds of grain on the way back to her mother-in-law. But she's, she's stepping up to the plate and she's swinging. And she says... Spread your wings over your servant. And then Boaz says to her, May you be blessed by the Lord. I mean, where, can, you imagine, can you imagine the tension between verses 9 and 10? Can you imagine the boldness of Ruth throwing that out there and then just waiting for Boaz's reply? Boaz could have very easily, well, Boaz could have done several things here. Boaz could have said, Get away from me, you unclean Moabitess. Boaz could have, could have seized upon this opportunity where she was clearly displaying her availability to him as wanting to marry him. She could have, he could have taken advantage of her. It, it, would have, it would have not been anything different from what was going on, certainly at that time, for him to do that. But yet he, he gives us this incredible picture of nobility, and he says... May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. And so what's he saying there? Well, how is Ruth being kind here? And what he's saying is, is that the first kindness that he's referring to is Ruth even coming with Naomi back to Bethlehem. And so what he's saying is, is there's, there's this kindness, there's this sort of love in Ruth that back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that she has shown this kindness to her mother-in-law to even come back to Bethlehem with her, that she has left her people, she has left her gods, and she is going with Naomi back to her people. But now he's saying that this, now this second kindness is even greater than the first. And what's he mean there? Well, he's saying, I, obviously the, the implication is clear is that she's a younger woman. She's probably pretty decent looking. She could have gone after other young men, whether poor or rich. But Ruth lays down those other options to marry, to sort of make herself known to Boaz, who is a redeemer, which we'll talk about here in just a second, who is a relative of Elimelech, who's Naomi's dead husband, who is in a particular position to offer protection and redemption to this family of Ruth and Naomi. So Ruth, in a sense, is sort of laying down what could be her preferences, laying down other options that might, in the eyes of the world, seem better to her to go after this one particular man who is in a unique position to redeem and protect and provide for this family. And now, my daughter, in verse 11, he says, Do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And so let's talk now a little bit more fully about what's going on here in this idea of redeemer. Boaz is what's called a kinsman redeemer. He is, uh, he is just this Old Testament concept and stipulation in Leviticus, and we see it in Numbers, where uh, God would, would in, encourage Moses to have people be a sort of protector of the family name. And it was very important for, uh, for, for families to maintain their property and to maintain uh, their livelihood through children. And so there's this idea in the Old Testament of this kinsman redeemer or family protector where the closest male relative of a man who had died would then have the opportunity to redeem or avenge the death of that man. If he was murdered, he could avenge that 
uh, death of that man. We see that in Numbers chapter 35. He could buy back the family property that maybe had been sold in uh, sold to pay debts. He could redeem a relative that had sold him into slavery. And also he could bear the responsibility of marrying his dead brother, his dead brother's wife, uh, if this particular brother had passed away so that he could redeem and keep the family name going, which was very important in this ancient world. And so if, the brother, if there were no brothers, then it would go to the next closest relative. And so what's happening here is that Boaz is, is a relative of Elimelech, and he is saying that he will be the man who protects, who provides for, and who keeps the family name of Elimelech going on. But in his nobility, he says that there's actually somebody else who's actually closer than I am. And so just as we were thinking, yes, we're going to do this, we're going to get this done, we only need three chapters to seal this deal, but oh, oh, there's this other guy out there, oh, Boaz, oh, really? Couldn't you just have acted like maybe you didn't know? I mean, couldn't we have just feigned ignorance here? But no, Boaz is a righteous man, and he says there's actually somebody that's a little bit closer on the family line. And so we've got to do this right. And so we see in verse 14, So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So even there, he's preserving. So he says, Okay, listen, we'll just stay here uh, for, for the rest of the night. And very early in the morning, we're going to have you get up because I don't want you kind of waking up as we're sort of getting up in the morning and everybody sees you're kind of laying down next to me at my feet. And everybody's going to be like, oh, oh, yeah, I wonder what happened over there. No, he's pre- preserving her dignity. And so he's saying, Wake up in the middle, uh, early in the morning, so that nobody will know that you came. And then he tells her to bring her garment. And hold it out. And again, just like he did in chapter 2, he blesses her with this, with this harvest, with this barley. And he, she holds out her, her, her garment and he fills it up with six measures of barley. And then she went into the city. Verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Can you imagine the stress of Naomi? I mean, come on. Let's think about it now. This was her wild plan. And there's no, <laughs> there's no cell phones, man. She's not getting any updates whatsoever. There's no nothing. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine Naomi staying up all night? I mean, she's the one that came up with this plan in the first place, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's awkward to say the least. I mean, things could have gone terribly wrong, right? I mean, it, it could have gone south. And so she, you can just see her sort of peering out the window, waiting for Ruth to come back. And so she sort of rushes out. How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. That's significant, because remember at the end of chapter 1, when Naomi was at sort of the depth of her bitterness, she says that the Lord brought me, I came here full, but now I'm empty. And it's like through Ruth and through Boaz's words to Ruth on the threshing floor, God is encouraging Naomi giving Boaz, who wasn't there on that conversation, the very same words to say to Ruth that then Ruth would repeat back to Naomi, reminding Naomi that when she was at the bottom of her bitterness, her perspective was not correct, and now God is going to fill her empty hands through this daughter-in-law. In In verse 18, she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Well, again... Uh, I am so tempted to just fast forward into chapter 4 and read and close this deal, but we will save that for next Sunday, and um, I think you can go ahead and read and figure out how it works out. It ends well, but we'll stop and handle that next week. All right, and what's this, what's this chapter teaching us? I think there are three things that uh, we would do well to settle on today, and it really all flows from this one great truth of, of God's diamond his unfailing love. The first is, is that God uses, very briefly, God uses imperfect human plans to bring about his purposes. What are we to make of Naomi's plan here? Uh, I was working through this chapter with uh, uh, Wayne this week in my office, and we were thinking, gosh, what, what are we to say about these first five verses of Ruth 3? There's this really strange, awkward plan I mean, it's in Scripture. Did, 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 you know, did, was Naomi right in concocting this 
really sort of strange, awkward, sketchy plan that was just fraught with danger. could have gotten Ruth abused. Um, it could have been misinterpreted by Boaz. I mean, what, what are we to make of this? And it was just kind of a, like a silence in my office. We didn't know what to say. And Wayne said, he said, you know, I think we need to remember that some of Scripture is a description of what happened, not necessarily a prescription of how we should act. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's right. Let me write that down. That sounds really good. So we should see in Ruth 3 a sort of description of what happened, not necessarily, not necessarily an endorsement for this type of scheming. So let me be very, very clear here, uh, uh, people, because we, we believe in sort of the nobility of manhood and the beauty of womanhood here. I, young ladies, I, although I think there's certainly things that we can learn from Ruth's boldness in this particular, I don't know that this is necessarily the way that I would encourage you to engage a young man who you, you know, kind of have your eye on. Nevertheless, we see how God uses this seemingly less than ideal scheme, this imperfect human plan, to bring about his purpose. In fact, in a sense, this sort of, this sort of scheme can be maybe kind of like the velvet that makes the diamond pop, right? It's sort of the backdrop of muddiness that sort of, that we'll see in just a second, makes the, the purity and the beauty and the confidence that we should take in God's providence, even as he works out, this should be a tremendous encouragement for us, don't you see this? Because all of our plans are muddied and awkward and less than perfect, and all of our scheming is falls short. Isn't this an encouragement? That, that here we have people that made it into the book. I mean, these are folks that are in the Bible. And, and, and we see Naomi with maybe a less than ideal plan, and even then God using it. Proverbs 16.9 says that the mind of a man or the heart of a man plans his way, but it's the Lord that establishes his steps. And so God uses imperfect human plans to bring about his purposes, but that's not the main theme of this chapter. Let's look at the second thing that I think this chapter teaches us. And I want to be really careful and clear about this because I think we can take uh, numerous wrong left turns when we think about this truth and this scene at the threshing floor. And the second truth that I want to draw out is, is that righteousness is possible even in the face of great temptation. Righteousness is possible even in the face of, of great temptation. Now, in order for us to really kind of see this particular aspect of God's unfailing love, I think we need to understand the several stark contrasts of this scene and the threshing floor. Remember, this is the time of judges, okay? So this is a time when everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Uh, judges 19 in particular recounts this scene of really intense sexual debauchery. And, and so here we have this scene that looks like it's kind of an illicit, lurid, you know, fleshy scene. But before it drifts down into sin we see kind of pop from this black velvet this beautiful righteousness of a man and a woman, all right? But we've got to appreciate just the nervousness that the first readers of this story would have felt because, because we, we have to understand some backdrop here. We have to understand who Ruth is and who she came from. She came from a group of people called the Moabites who in Numbers chapter 25... Were, were indicted by God for seducing the Jewish men. And God got so angry at the, the carnality and the, the tempting ways of Moabite women that he sent a, his anger was aroused, it says in Numbers chapter 25. He sent a plague and it killed 24,000 of his people. And so these Moabites are not just unclean Gentiles. They're not just you know foreigners that are sort of antagonists of Israel in the Old Testament, they are particularly known by the people of God for their carnality, for the tempting ways of their young women who in this particular instance in number 20, Numbers 25 led uh, Jewish men away to uh, seduction and other gods and God punished them for that. And so here we have this Moabite woman, uh, Ruth, who's 
in this scene where it seems like maybe she's going down the same road that we saw in Numbers 25, right? But yet, it doesn't go down that road, and in this scene where everything seems to be stacked against him, I mean, come on now. Look, you've had a long day's work. You had a good meal. You noticed the girl chapter before in Ruth chapter 2. She's probably pretty decent looking. There's nobody. Everybody's asleep. You're off in the corner of the grain pile. She uncovers your feet. She smells good. Remember, Ruth, I mean, Naomi told her, anoint yourself. I mean, she smells pretty good. You had a good meal. You get woken up, and she's staring at you, and she basically proposes marriage to you. The stars are shining. I mean, come on, this is a tempting situation. And in this tempting situation, we see a picture of biblical nobility, biblical manhood and womanhood. In Ruth, we see this beautiful mix of strength and submission. But why would God even allow this scene to kind of happen this way, to have these contrasts build? I think what he's doing there is he's showing Ruth as a beautiful picture of submission as a woman of God submitting to her mother-in-law's plan, submitting really at the feet of Boaz, but yet she's not just this sort of weak woman who just sort of submits and she just is sort of supposed to just sort of hide behind. She's also this picture of incredible strength. Do you see this, women? Do you see this? So in one sense, she's very submissive, but in another sense, she's very strong. Right? She uncovers his feet. Man, her heart is beating out of her chest, but she doesn't whip out. She uncovers his feet, and she actually takes it one step further, and she says, Boaz, answer your very own prayer for me. Be the answer to your prayer. Friends, she has this beautiful display of biblical womanhood, of submission, but yet strength. Contrast that with with just the way our culture presents womanhood. Either a woman is pictured as overly sexualized and good only because of her looks, or she's presented as the sort of domineering sort of taskmaster, like that figure in Glee, and I don't even watch that show, so don't even act like, don't email me saying, oh, I can't believe you act. I don't watch that show, it's garbage. But she's either over-sexualized, or she's like this taskmaster school teacher, right? Like Mommy Dearest, and like Nurse Ratchet, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And any of you that are under the age of 30 have no idea what I'm talking about. That was a really good movie, though. Do you see how our culture wants to portray womanhood in such broken extremes? Either is over-assertive aggressive, I am woman, hear me roar, or just merely a sexual object. And Boaz, in this scene that could be filled with debauchery, rises up and gives us this beautiful picture of submission and strength. Do you see that? And so, so, so from this, I think we should be encouraged that, yes, it's possible. It's possible, even in the face of great temptation. And then Boaz, we see this noble picture of a protecting, selfless man full of integrity. Contrast this with the power-grabbing, grown-up frat boy image or the bumbling idiot we see playing the father on many sitcoms. So either, so, so we've got these broken pictures of womanhood, and we've also got these broken pictures of manhood. We've either got him being like the party guy who just gets what he wants and uses women and stuff for his own pleasure, or we've got the picture of just the, just the absolute knucklehead who, who can't even dress himself, and the dog is smarter than he is in the family, Right? So where do we have this picture of a man who is wise and courageous and noble and who can, who can say no to temptation? Well, we have this picture in Boaz. And we see Boaz rising above temptation and receiving this woman in a righteous way. And by the way, just as a side note, just, just as a side note, I meant to get to this last week, and I'm taking kind of a little rabbit trail here, and let me get back on track. I, I just think one of the things, one of the, way down the list, but one of the beautiful things that we see in this book of Ruth is this beautiful picture of really God's endorsement and pleasure in interracial marriage. 
Uh, I, I think that in the Old Testament, one of the things I talked about it last week is, is just this God is, in a sense, purifying his own people and, in one sense, forbidding them from intermarrying. But that was never because of ethnicity. It was because he didn't, he realized that his people, at this particular stage of his dealings with them in, in redemptive history, realized that they were not ready spiritually yet to receive other peoples. And so when you read in the Old Testament where God says, don't marry these people, it's not because God is some sort of racist or he loves one particular group of people better than the other. It's, it's not ethnic, it's theological at that point. God is wanting to purify his people. But here in this picture where one Moabitess turns and trusts in the God of Israel, God then lets that love story of how she marries one of his people be a sort of picture of what marriage should be all about. And now we can fast forward to the New Testament in places like Galatians where it said there's neither Jew nor Greek. That there, we're one in Christ Jesus. I actually think that one of the outflows of a church that really understands the gospel well would be a sort of joy in races that come together, every tribe and nation and tongue. And one of the outflows of a church that really understands the gospel well, especially in our region where the races have been divided, is the way we, in contrast to the culture around us, view not only relationships between different ethnicities, but even marriages between different ethnicities. And I think that it can actually be a beautiful display of God's grace. And I think we as a church need to love that and see that as an opportunity for a particular display of God's grace among all the peoples. And so we see here righteousness is possible even in the face of great temptation. Now off of that rabbit trail back onto the point. We see these two people fighting what must have been great temptation. And I wanted to stop here and just say, listen, um, this is not what Ruth chapter 3 is about, but we live in such a culture of, of just flesh and sin that I think I would be remiss as a pastor if I didn't just say here that this, this chapter, this scene on the threshing floor just gives us a picture of, of just the fact that righteousness in Christ is possible. And if you find yourself in a compromising situation, or, or maybe even right now you are in a relationship where you are physically involved with somebody that is not your spouse, whether you are not married to that person, you're single and you're not married, or maybe you're married to another person and you are in a compromising physical relationship or just an emotional relationship where you are going down that road. Friends, can I just encourage you by the grace of God that this picture doesn't just hold up this sort of morality that wants to beat us over the head, but to say that it is possible. It, grace is possible. If you are in that situation, flee. Get out of it right now. How do you flee? You, you confess it to a brother or sister. If you find yourself being lured away by the mess of culture that we live in, and you are being sort of sucked out by the riptide of sexuality, if, you are, if, you, if all you have done is just take in our culture's notion of sexuality and manhood and womanhood, and, and young lady, if you've feasted your eyes on the brokenness of these television shows like Bachelor and Bachelorette, and that's your idea, and young men, if you have feasted your eyes on broken images of naked women on your computer, and now you are like in this sewer, you are in this sewer being drawn out by a riptide, I want you to know that there is gospel grace and hope for those who I think probably as most of us have made a mess of their lives of giving in to temptation. There is a picture here that God redeems. There's this picture that should have gone left, but God redeems it. Scripture is full of people who have gotten it terribly wrong, but yet God redeems them and gives them something more beautiful than the broken notion of beauty that this world would give as a counterfeit. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're being tempted, or you find yourself in the middle of a situation where you are failing, you're not just being tempted, but you're just giving into it. This, this, this scene in Ruth 3 isn't just to beat you over the head with morality to reinforce how not like Boaz or Ruth you are, but it is to give you hope that in Christ, 
in Christ. One of the reasons that Christ died for you was not just to forgive you of his sins, but to actually give you his character and to fill you with his spirit and to give you a people called the church so that you can do what is more satisfying than given to this thing. And friends, I come at you because the Bible is true and because of experience in my own life in this way, that there is a way that is better. There is a way that is better than what this culture offers us. Righteousness is possible even in the face of great temptation. But let me not lose the diamond here amongst the black velvet and the gold ring. This is the final and most prominent point in this chapter. And it is that God loves his people with an unfailing love and enables them to love others this way. This word that we see in verse 10 of chapter 3 where it says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness. We also see that in Ruth chapter 2 verse 10, where, where Ruth says, why have I find favor in your eyes? And then we see it in Ruth chapter 1, um, verse uh, 8, where Naomi says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. We see this word, and this word in Hebrew is, is this word called hesed. And hesed is this notion that's woven all throughout the Old Testament. And this word hesed, it's a Hebrew word that really we can't translate in English. One commentator uh, gives us these words that I think will be helpful. He says, Hesed, Hebrew Hesed, this word Hesed, cannot be translated with one English word. This is a covenant term, wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. So in this one word, Hesed, this unfailing love, this steadfast love that we heard read about in Psalm 36 this morning, this sort of beautiful, power-packed word that, that carries with it all the positive aspects of God's love is, is what's going on here in, in chapter 3 and verse 10 where, where, where we see Boaz commending Ruth for a picture of this type of love that is flowing from God through her. And so all through the book, we see behind the scenes this, this hesed, love of God. And what we see here is that those who have received God's said love, this unfailing, steadfast love, give it away to others. So we see Ruth, who's received this love from Boaz, or from God, and she's able to give it away to Naomi. And we see Boaz, who's received this love. God has made him one of his people. He is, he's been blessed by God, and he's giving it away. And so in this sort of black patch of velvet... You see this culture where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And then on this patch of velvet, we have this ring where, where we have this scene that could have gone just absolutely left. It could have gone just terribly wrong. We have this beautiful diamond that flows through these people. God's love flowing through Boaz and Ruth. To give us a picture of how God loves his people. And so here's what I think the point is of chapter 3. Is that God, God loves his people with an unfailing love. God loves his people with unfailing love. God doesn't love us like, like the world loves us. It's not based on our continued merit. When God makes us his people, he loves us with this unfailing love. He, he doesn't leave us. He, he doesn't forsake us. He doesn't leave us to our temptations. He doesn't cast us off for our sin. He doesn't, he doesn't make there no way possible for a Moabite. He doesn't, he doesn't punish us for our attitudes like we have when we're like Naomi and we're bitter. He brings things around and he fills us with his grace and His mercy, and He loves His people with an unfailing love. I mean, can we just see this picture of how God loves us? And that love is, is most clearly and fully seen for, for the Christian in view of the whole Bible. It's most clearly seen by God's work in Christ on the cross. Let me read to you is just... My final words, 1 John 4, 7 through 12, where it says this about how God's unfailing love is seen most clearly and fully in Christ. John writes this. Beloved, 
let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. You see, this the message of Ruth 3. The message of the Bible is not square yourself away so that you become presentable to God. It's that God loves us first and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means to be the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. The message of the gospel, the message of Christianity is not that you must atone for your own sins. It's that Jesus absorbed God's justice for us. He absorbed God's wrath. He fulfilled God's law where we could not on the cross. And He became the wrath-bearing substitute for our sins. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfect in us. This chapter holds out great hope for us that um, we are able to love like Boaz loved Ruth and like Ruth loves Naomi because God has loved us with an unfailing, steadfast, grace and mercy-filled love. Well, let's pray. Lord, as we come to a time of responding to your scriptures, I, I pray a couple things that First, we would just take great confidence. That we would take great confidence in this love that we see in Ruth chapter 3. Lord, help us be people that see the diamond of your love. For Christians in this room who have been great recipients of your love, who you have poured out on us lavishly, You've turned away your wrath and your anger for our rebellion, and you've poured out kindness on us through Jesus' work on the cross. God, I pray as we pray here often that that wouldn't just dead end on us, but it would flow through us so that we would be sort of gracious, redeeming lights in our culture that become a sort of picture of your unfailing love. God, would you stir our hearts with that? Would you see that as you work through Boaz, as you work through Ruth to be a sort of channel, a, a conduit of your unfailing love, God, that you desire to do that for in through us as your people. Lord, would you stir our hearts to reject self-absorption, to reject accumulation of blessings just for our own comfort and let us be people who just risk radical love, who stare temptation in the face, who say no to broken pleasures so that we can say yes to something bigger which makes us portals of your redeeming, unfailing love to a world. God, would you do that in us as Christians? And Lord, for the person in this room who is not yet a believer in Jesus, that they came into this room and they haven't trusted in you yet, whether they realize they were in that place or not, Lord, would you just, would you, would you, I'm not trying to convince them of the rightness of Christianity as an ethic above other ways. Although, certainly, we could build a great case along those lines. But God, the, the point of the scriptures is not functionality or how if you do this, then will God will bless this or your life will go better. The ultimate point is, God, that your love is, it just fills our soul with the only thing that will satisfy. And so, God, for that person in this room this morning who has not trusted in that love, which is most clearly expressed in your self-sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross, God, would they turn from self-love? Would they turn from broken, counterfeit loves? And would they see your unfailing love on the cross even now and trust? And friend, if that's you, I just want you to see the diamond. I want you to fall in love with the diamond. 
just want you to see the diamond of God's unfailing love. I want you to see it, and I want you to be enraptured and captured and enthralled with the beauty that is God. I want you to find your deepest longing and satisfaction in God's love, and I want you to turn away from other broken counterfeits and idols, and I want you to trust in God's love which is most fully expressed in Christ's work on the cross. I want you to see Jesus, and I want you to trust in Him. I want you to embrace Him as the all-encompassing treasure of your life. Friend, would you do that even now? If you haven't ever done that, would you turn from self-trust, turn from self-love, and trust in Jesus? God, would you, would you give the gift of a new heart so that my friend can do that this morning? Would you do that for your glory and our true joy? In Jesus' name, amen.